We're going to read from John chapter 21, and on, I, I'm going to speak a little bit about it. I'll tell you about the title in a moment, but I'm going to build off of uh, Pastor Dan's message last week. thought it was a tremendous sermon on an unoffensive gospel with a question mark at the end of it. And I hope that if you haven't heard it, I hope that you will go back and listen to it because it is an outstanding sermon, much needed in our day and age. Beginning in verse 15, So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you really love me more than these? And you'll find out in a moment, that really was an offensive statement to make. I mean, that was, a, that was hitting a, a weak spot. Uh, that was probing an area of sensitivity in Peter. And he said unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love thee. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. He said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said unto him, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Do you love me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Word of God. Last week, Dan preached a message dealing with Max Lucado's backtracking recently. Of course, Max Lucado, a well-known and respected Christian author, uh, was invited to speak at the Washington National Cathedral. And some LGBTQ plus activists dug into history and found that he had preached an absolutely biblically accurate message in 2004. It was spot on. Folks, the Word of God is either true or it isn't. It's up to each and every one of us whether we want to agree with it or not. However, God is God and His Word is true. Now, Lucado preached a marvelous message in 2004 that was spot on accurate. Seventeen years later, he is now apologizing because he has been pressured by the political correct mob. Well, quite frankly, there have been generations of Christians that have wound up giving their lives for their faith rather than compromise. So I am disappointed uh, in his response. But either the gospel has changed in the last 17 years or his courage has changed to stand up for the gospel in the last 17 years. But Dan preached a message last week called An Unoffensive Gospel. Today I am going to continue on that, preaching on the subject, An Unoffensive Love, with a question mark. An Unoffensive Love. It was after the resurrection. Now, some 40 plus days after the resurrection, Peter and James and John, Thomas and Nathaniel had returned to the Galilee and were back fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Apparently, Peter was so disappointed in himself and his failure the night of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, even though he had seen the resurrected Christ, he still was so ashamed of himself that he didn't feel worthy of being in the ministry. And in return to fishing, Scripture says that they had been out all night and they'd caught nothing. And as the dawn was breaking, they were moving closer to the shore, and they saw a man on the shore yelling at them to throw their nets out on the other side. Well, I imagine Peter recalled a very similar situation that had occurred some three years earlier with Jesus. And, of course, he did throw the nets out on the other side and caught a haul. Well, they took the chance. They said, okay, 
Let's do it again. And they threw their nets out on the other side and caught such a draught of fish that it nearly sank the boat. As they came in closer to the shore, Peter was so excited, he hopped out of the boat into the water and and raced ahead against his friends. They pulled the boat to shore and pulled the fish to shore. The Scripture tells us that they had fish for breakfast that day. One bad thing about visiting Israel is they still serve fish for breakfast. (laughs) And they don't serve bacon for breakfast because that is not kosher. However, they do take care of us Gentiles. They do offer some eggs and danishes and things. But uh, anyway, they had fish for breakfast that day. And after they were done, Jesus asked three questions about Peter's love that we read in our text this morning. As I read in this account in English in the KJV, it's rather confusing. Doesn't seem to make sense. Do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord, I love you. Well, Peter, do you really love me? Well, yes, Lord, I love you. Oh, Peter, do you love me? And then he's really disappointed the third time, uh, and he admits that he loves him, but he's ashamed now for some reason. Well, why? Well, although in English we see the same word used, in Greek there are actually two completely different words with completely different meanings, both translated as love in English. Two words are phileo and agape. And they're very different. Phileo is a natural, conditional, responsive love. This person is nice to me. Therefore, I like to be around them. That is phileo. That's conditional. So if this person stops being nice to me, I will no longer like being around them. I love donuts because they taste good. Well, during my radiation treatment during my throat cancer, I lost my taste buds altogether. Hated donuts. It actually had a very bitter taste when I tried to eat them. So that was a phileo, a responsive uh, likeness, an attraction, a responsive fondness based upon the taste. As long as it tasted good, I enjoyed the donuts. When it stopped tasting good, I ceased to enjoy the donuts. That is phileo. The word agape we taught about, in fact, very recently, even on uh, Valentine's Day, we talked about agape. Agape is a supernatural, unconditional act of the will. It is active and it is a decision. It's not emotional. For God so loved the world that He, for God so agape the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Actually, this passage of Scripture in the complete Jewish Bible really clarifies some of the misunderstanding. Let me reread it to you from this text. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I'm fond of you. You know I am your friend. Jesus said, feed my lambs. A second time he said unto him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? He said, yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. You know how fond I am of you. He said unto him, shepherd my sheep. The third time he said unto him, Simon, son of Jonah, are you my friend? Simon was hurt when he questioned him the third time, are you my friend? So he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. 
Jesus again said, feed my sheep. There is nothing confusing about this conversation. Big, braggadocious Peter had boasted the night of Jesus' arrest after Jesus had warned all of them that they would deny him and abandon him that night. Peter said, Lord, hey, these other men may deny you. These other men may abandon you, but not me. I'll be with you to the bitter end. Yet three times that evening did, that evening Peter did in fact deny knowing Jesus. So here, Jesus, of no coincidence, asked Peter three times, Do you really love me more than these others? Peter's ashamed of the reality of admitting the immature love that he actually held. Jesus called him to prove real, sacrificial, serving, agape love by tending to the ministry of serving the Lord's flock. Therefore, he said, feed my lambs, Peter, shepherd my sheep. Ladies and gentlemen, with this being said, let's answer this first question. What does love mean? Well, although these two words, phileo and agape, are used primarily throughout the Scripture text, there are actually four total Greek words, all translated love in Bible. Phileo and agape, we've already discussed. But there's two others. There's the word storge, which is a natural family love, a love that a child might have for a parent. And then there's the word eros, which is the intimate love that's the, to be held sacred between a husband and wife only in the bonds of marriage, that intimacy. So you see four types of love, the phileo, the natural response of love, the agape, the unconditional sacrificial servant love, the storge, the, the family love, and the eros, the intimate love. So doesn't that clear up a lot of our questions in our mind? We say, I love a good meal. We also say, I love my wife. Well, both statements are true, but the love is not the same. One is phileo, one is agape. I have two sons. I love my sons. I also love my church congregation in the Lord. But the type of love that I have for each is not the same. One is storge, the other is agape. And ladies and gentlemen, you can have different types of love for the same person. I am commanded to agape my wife in the Lord. That is an act of obedience. But I also phileo my wife. I enjoy being around her. She's nice to me. I think she's beautiful. She's attractive. That's a responsive love. I enjoy being around her. And then also we have the eros, the intimate attraction that a husband and wife should have. Now, two of the loves that I have for her are natural. The eros, phileo, natural human love. The agape is a supernatural, unconditional act of the will. Next. The command to love your neighbor as yourself was not something Jesus just spontaneously came up with. By the way, that is the word agape. You might not like your neighbor. You might not enjoy being around him. He might be obnoxious. That's not the word here. Agape. This command was not something that Jesus just came up with to irritate the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And this was actually... A command that Yahweh had given and defined in that evil book of Leviticus. You know that evil book that President Obama said we need to get rid of because it just talks about terrible things. This man wouldn't know the Bible if you smacked him in the head with it. That book that Andy Stanley says we need to disconnect from, that evil Old Testament book that condemns sexual immorality and condemns cross-dressing, 
also is the book that commands us to love your neighbor as yourself. Did you know that? This church should have known that. Most do not. So for a Jew, the concept of loving your neighbor of yourself was not a new doctrine. For some 1,500 years, the Old Testament had clearly defined the requirements for Jews upon their fellow Jews. Let's look at this passage quickly just to reacquaint you with it. Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 9 down through 18. Here is the commandments of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. In other words, treating them as you would like to be treated. Verse 9, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of the field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord. What is this dealing with? This is talking about charity. When they would harvest, they would not harvest all the way to the corners of their property. They would harvest the majority. They would leave the edges as they were going through harvesting and putting stuff in their bags. If they happened to drop an ear of corn or drop some wheat or drop a bunch of grapes as they were taking them off, off the vine, they weren't to pick them up. They were supposed to leave them there. Now, notice how this worked. Charity was not them doing all the work and then giving of their wealth to help the poor. Charity was them reaping their fields, then leaving what was left and inviting the poor to come in and work for themselves to collect what was left over. That was loving your neighbor as yourself. So charity was not a handout, but they were to provide for the needs of the poor. That was loving your neighbor as yourself, treating your neighbor as you would like them to treat you. Verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, neither lie one to another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. In other words, basically lying in a contract. Under oath, I promise this to be true, or I present this to you as true, when it is in fact not. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. So, loving your neighbor as yourself means to be honest. Don't lie to them. Don't mislead them. Don't take anything that's not yours. Verse 13. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until morning. Many of these in this era were day laborers, just like we have many in America today that are living paycheck to paycheck. If their paycheck doesn't come in in cash on Friday, they may not eat that weekend. Well, this was the case then. They were supposed to be paid at the end of the day. Hey, if somebody had done a full day's labor, you need to pay him everything he was owed on time so he could provide for his family that night. So pay your debts. Pay your employees on time and pay them fair wages. Don't cheat in business. That is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. Thou shalt fear thy God. I am the Lord. Imagine taking advantage of a person that didn't know how to read. And say, here, just sign this contract. Uh, I promise you uh, that these are the terms. And this person signs their name or makes their mark when in fact the terms of the contract, you have misled them. That's what this is talking about. Uh, don't exploit the disadvantage. Don't take advantage of the poor or weak. This is, according to the law, loving your neighbor as you love yourself. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. In other words, judge righteously, uh, objectively in everything. No favoritism. Uh, no, justice is to be blind. Verse 16. 
Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. What that last part means, if you look in the complete Jewish Bible, you shall not stand idly by while the life of your neighbor is in danger. The first part of that says don't gossip. Don't maliciously lie to destroy the character and reputation of your neighbor. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. In other words, don't harbor a grudge or resentment and let it build up. If your neighbor has wronged you, go to him and talk to him. The B part of that says this. If your neighbor is doing wrong, then go to him. Otherwise... You are complicit in his wrongdoing. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. Verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. In other words, if you cross-reference that with other Scripture, if someone is breaking into your home, you can defend your home at that point, but you cannot get up the next day and go avenge the crime. The next day you leave it in the hands of the law. So you're to defend your home, but no such thing as getting even. Even justice lies with the law. Now, notice the end part. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So, folks, there's nothing here about warm, fuzzy thoughts. There's nothing here about gooey emotions. That may be the word phileo. This is the unconditional way we are to behave and treat each other. This is basically the golden rule. In summary, we are to be charitable. We are to be honest. We are to be consistent. In other words, we are to live like Christians. We're to pay our debts on time. In fact, we are to be generous. And by the way, you want a strong testimony when you go to lunch after church today, don't just leave a track and a 10% tip. Leave a track and a 25% tip if you want to really score some points with your server. Don't cheat in business. Don't exploit the disadvantaged, the poor and the weak. Judge righteously and objectively in everything. Don't gossip or maliciously lie to destroy the character of another. Protect the welfare of your neighbor. Don't harbor a grudge or resentment. Defend your home, but justice lies with the law. Treat other ways, treat others the way you want to be treated, which is fairly, justly, and genuinely. And the point I want to make sure you don't miss, this passage specifically says that if my neighbor is doing wrong, if I love him, I should attempt to stop him. If my neighbor's life is in danger, if I love him, I should attempt to to save him. This isn't hard, is it? This isn't confusing, is it? I have heard preachers butcher this. Now, if I love my neighbor as myself, does that mean it's my responsibility to make my neighbor's house payment for him or to make his car payment for him? Because it says, love my neighbor as myself. The answer is no. It's his job to provide for his family, just as it's my job to provide for mine. However, if my neighbor was to suffer on hard times because of some unforeseen reason, then I may choose to help him in the middle of those hard times. That's loving my neighbor. Is it my responsibility to mow my neighbor's yard? No, it's my responsibility to make sure my yard is, is mowed. It's his responsibility to mow his own yard. However, 
If he happens to have uh, going to the hospital because he's got some heart issues or knee surgery and he can't take care of it, as a good neighbor, I may mow his yard for a week or two. That is an example of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, does this mean that I'm unloving if I try to stop him from doing something that will hurt him? No, just the opposite. If I love him, I'm going to try to intervene and keep him from harm. Now, here's where Jesus turned it up an extra knot. He added that we're supposed to even treat those that hate us with this same kind of respect. Even those that say nasty things about us, we are supposed to treat them as we ourselves would like to be treated. So what does the Bible command us to do? We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. What does the Bible command us to do? We're supposed to love our enemies. Well, what does love mean? Does that mean applauding and condoning wicked, sinful behavior. Let me ask that again, because apparently you didn't hear me. If I'm loving my neighbor, does that mean I am supposed to applaud and condone wicked, sinful behavior? No. We just read it, folks. And I promise you, when Rabbi Jesus, who is the Word of God with a capital W, was speaking about loving your neighbor as yourself, this is the passage he was referencing. And the Jews would have known that that was the passage he was referencing. Loving your neighbor means telling them the truth. Loving your neighbor means trying to save them from physical and spiritual death, is it not? Can I say I love you? And then continue to go down an error-trodden path that's eventually going to lead to the lake of fire? Is that really loving someone? Because I don't want to hurt them, their feelings. I'm willing to let them ruin their body uh, through disease because of this particular lifestyle. Uh, but I don't want to offend them. I'm willing to let them die without knowing Christ as Savior and spend eternity separated from God in the lake of fire because I don't want to run the risk of offending them and being called a hater. Is that really loving your neighbor? Ladies and gentlemen, I can show you in the Bible where God created two sexes. And only two sexes. Male and female, period. Not only is it biblically true, but it's biologically and scientifically provable. I can show you in the Bible where God forbids transgender cross-dressing. I'll talk a little bit more about why here in a moment. I can show you in the Bible where God condemns sex outside of the union of a husband and wife. Any sexual relationship outside of a husband and wife is considered sin. And please recognize this. I say this frequently, but you must know it. God created us as sexual beings, and He did it on purpose. God created men like men and women like women, and we can enjoy the intimacy of Eros because God designed it that way. And God gave this as a gift to be held sacred and holy within the limitations and boundaries of the marital covenant. I can show you in the Bible where not only is homosexuality a sin, but the Scripture says that it's a violation of natural law itself. Folks, There are some parts of your body that are just marked for exit only. 
that may seem funny, but that's very frank, and it's very obvious, and it's very true. And any doctor will tell you about the harm that can happen to an individual if that law is violated. Now, the LGBT activists, LGBTQ, uh, whatever activists will say, love your neighbor when we tell them the truth. To which I would say, we are loving our neighbor by telling them the truth. As followers of Christ, we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may know what is good and acceptable and perfect in God's will. Ladies and gentlemen, we are supposed to conform our erroneous ways to the truth. We aren't supposed to redefine what is true to make it conform to our sinful will and ways. That's one of the reasons why the cross-dressing was addressed in Scripture. Do you know that God created you just exactly as you are on purpose and put you in the United States of America in 2021, not by accident, but by design? And if you are a man, then strive to be the man that God created you to be. And if you are a woman, then our objective, our goal is to strive to be the woman that God created you to be. But I've got some news for you. What's interesting is both God and the devil want us to be like the God we worship. However, Jehovah wants us to conform ourselves to be like Him. According to Paul, the devil wants us to create a God after our own image and try to become like whatever our wicked heart's desire is. Again, truth is aligning what you believe to be true with that which is factually true. Not changing the history books, not changing definitions of the dictionary so that, so that whatever the definition of truth aligns with what you want to be true. Example, if I was wanting to go to Dallas and I got out on Interstate 35 and headed north and my cell phone map said you're going the wrong direction, I could throw it out the window. I could take the map that I'm looking on and as I approached uh, the Stillwater exit, I could say this map is wrong and I could take a, a black marker and wrap out Stillwater and put in Dallas up here where Wichita, Kansas is. I can redefine the truth all I want. Now, ever, that doesn't change the truth. And one of these days, I'm going to come to a rude awakening when I blow into the city limits and says, welcome to Wichita. And I said, that's impossible. I was going to Dallas. And one of these days when we stand before God and say, that's not fair. I didn't say that it was that way. God says, I don't care. It's not my responsibility to conform to your wishes. It's your responsibility to conform to my wishes. To conform to what is true. Ladies and gentlemen, we're told that saying no is unloving. I've got news for you. My mom said no to me all the time. In fact, I thought it was my middle name for a while. Paul, no. Paul, no. Paul, no. But my mom and dad loved me enough to tell me no when I did something was wrong. My mom and dad loved me enough to discipline me if I continued in willful disobedience. And likewise, I loved my kids enough to tell them no when they wanted to do something that was bad for them. 
In fact, the Bible says that God loves us enough to tell us no when we want to sin. And we love those that are enslaved by any perversion from God's will to tell them the truth and to call them to repent from sin, whether that be a a, a temptation towards drunkenness or a temptation towards covetousness or temptation towards deceit or temptation towards greed or temptation towards hatred or temptation towards lust of any type. When I do marital counseling, I love young couples enough that the first lesson we do is I have them read the book Total Money Makeover and bring me a budget because you can't live on love. And one of the two leading causes of divorces is financial problems. You know what? That's not comfortable for a young couple that's thinking about getting married to do, to talk about how they're going to bring their finances together, and then budget and spend their money. But I love them enough to take the conversation to where it is uncomfortable. Because I want them to experience the blessings of doing it God's way. I love our youth enough to teach them about sexual purity. It's one of the reasons we openly talk about this. We don't get graphic. But folks, when your kids are becoming teenagers and their bodies are experiencing changes, I, I can assure you, They've got questions that they want to be answered. Now, they can either get the answers from you and from the Bible, or they can get their answers from the Internet or from some other idiot at school. And I love those that are tormented in the LGBT lifestyle enough to tell them the truth about their lifestyle. Ladies and gentlemen, it isn't loving to encourage someone to continue in sin. Love will try to rescue another from the bondage and penalty for sin. So Max Licato, when he backs up and decides to no longer want to hurt the feelings of those that are engaged in a lifestyle that God calls immoral, Max Lucado is in fact sinning by doing that. Paul very clearly says in Romans chapter 1, as he is talking about this particular subject matter that we're addressing at the moment, not only are those that practice it sinning, but those that approve of their practice is also sinning with them. So you may hate the truth, but speaking the truth is love. Love doesn't mean you never say no. As we've already pointed out, saying no is a demonstration of love. Correcting error is not a lack of love. It is a demonstration of love. And as the Scripture says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and correcteth every son. Now, Jesus, on the last night of his life before the crucifixion, in the upper room, he commanded his disciples to love one another as he loved them with this agape love. As a matter of fact, that is how they were to be known as followers of Christ by bearing evidence of this agape love which we have just defined in detail. Love is not always unoffensive. Quite frankly, it is offensive. I promise you, when Jesus pointed that out to Peter, (laughs) Peter, (laughs) do you really love me more than these guys, really? I guarantee you, that was a shot between the eyes. 
That was a shot to the solar plexus. Peter knew exactly what he was talking about. Big old bragger. Hey, there may be a man in your orbit, not me. I'll be with you. Really, Peter? Huh. Peter, you really love me, one of these guys? Folks, sometimes love hurts a little bit. Hey, sometimes that scalpel surgeon may hurt a little bit. Sometimes the gospel cuts. Jesus said the gospel of offense. Jesus said, I've not come uh, to bring peace but a sword. I've not come to unite but divide. I'm going to divide families. Paul said the word of God is, is sharp and powerful than any two-edged sword, piercing either the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and sinew as the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hey, the word of God's going to cut. It's going to convict. But that's good. Each and every one of us need to be in church Hey, a lot of times we're going to preach all sorts of messages. We're going to preach salvation's message. We're going to preach an encouraging, a maturing message. As Dan preached about last time, justification, sanctification, glorification. Much of the time we're speaking about sanctification. How to become better Christians. Sometimes we're addressing sin. Stepping on toes to get the sin out of our lives. Sometimes we may be preaching about end times. Sometimes we may preach about the culture. Hey, we're supposed to make disciples, teaching you all to observe all things whatsoever God has commanded, even unto the end of this age. But sometimes the truth cuts. Sometimes the gospel offends. Sometimes love is offensive when you have to say no. One Christmas, I wanted an electric guitar and amplifier. I was at that dorky, awkward, ugly age of being a teenager. Sorry any of you teenagers happen to be in here. Those of you that are adults know exactly what I'm talking about. You know how cute and adorable we are up until about age 8, 9. Then how handsome we become again when we're about 17, 18, 19. Then there's those 10 years in between. It's like, oh my goodness, what? Have mercy. Well, I was at that awkward age and I wanted to be a rock star. And I wanted a Gibson Les Paul electric guitar and a custom, capital K, custom 5. It was a nice, modest size amp. I figured that was reasonable. <laughs> Christmas morning came and there was a box in there under the tree, just the perfect size, that custom amp. I leapt in there. I ripped the package open to find a 13-inch Sony black and white television. I was never so heartbroken in all my life. But you know what? Mom and Dad weren't born yesterday. They knew what I was up to. They knew the direction I was heading. And they loved me enough to say no. I didn't like the no. I was offended at it. Nevertheless, thank God for parents that do say no. Thank God for a Lord that says no when we want to stray from the truth. But John, of course, was there that night, and he dealt with this subject in his first epistle. He said this in 1 John, said, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. This isn't something new, something you haven't heard of before, but an old commandment. In fact, you've had this from the very beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you. Wait a minute, John, is this a new commandment or an old commandment? Which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Two Greek words here 
for new. One means new as in a new model. One means new as in refreshed or a fresh new quality. John says this commandment to love your neighbor has been around for 1,500 years. It's been around since Mount Sinai when God gave the law. So it's not new in time, but it is new in quality. It is new in character. How? Because now we are, as born-again believers, in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is in us. And as a result, we have the capacity to love our brothers in a new way as Christ loves us. Again, this is a supernatural love, truly, when it's carried out as God designed it. So let's consider what we've learned. There are four types of love. Three are natural. One is a supernatural act of obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Does Love mean we accept all behavior? Does love mean everything is okay? Of course not. As parents, we love our children, and because we love them, we say no for their own well-being. And according to the definition of loving our neighbor that we find in Leviticus 17, which Jesus was referencing specifically, it is our responsibility to intervene to save the life, health, or well-being of our neighbors. Finally, agape is not warm, fuzzy feelings. Agape has nothing to do with feelings. This is an act of obedience. This is love in action. This is the love you have for a neighbor or a church member. Hey, we might not enjoy everybody's company. We might not be each other's cup of tea all the time. We not, might not always get along great. We have introverts. We have extroverts. We have Sooner fans. We have Cowboy fans. We have people all over the place. We have those poor, pitiful bear fans, which are just losers forever. <laughs> we might not always enjoy hanging out with everybody in the church. However, that's not agape. We are to unconditionally love each other and treat each other as we wish to be treated in return. That's okay. This is foundational. Now, let me close with this regarding God's love for man as opposed to the justice that God demands. Does God love man? Well, yes. John 3.16, Romans 5.8, many passages, loves us so much, Jesus died for our sins. Does God hate sin? Yes. Imagine the thing that you hate most. Imagine if any of you hated snakes. Imagine being in a bathtub and have snakes poured all over you. Imagine if you hated spiders and you had spiders poured all over you. I mean, just yeah. God feels the same way about sin. Hates it. It's contrary to His very nature. Well, God hates sin, but God loves man. Isn't man a sinner? Yes. In fact, the Bible very clearly says in multiple places, and we know by experience that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Well, how does God reconcile that paradox? First of all, understand that God demonstrated His love for us in countless ways. One way is that God didn't make us robots and force us to obey. That is not love. 
Obedience can be forced, but love cannot be forced. He gave us the freedom to choose. Recognize this. The fact of freedom is a good thing. But sometimes our acts or actions in freedom are not good things. Just as when Adam and Eve both sinned against God, just as when we sin against God. Point number two, man chose to sin. That choice breaks God's heart as sin separates us from God. And if we die separated from God, then we'll spend eternity separated from God in a place that wasn't designed for us. Matthew 24, 17 says that hell was designed for the, the fallen angels. Hell was designed for Satan and, and for, for, for angels that disobeyed God and left their first love. It wasn't created for us. But if we die separated from God and we die in our sins, we will most certainly spend eternity in that place which was created to punish sin. But understand, God will not force us to spend eternity with Him against our will. And we don't come to God on our terms. We come to God on His terms. Next thing, God's unconditional love moved Him to purchase our redemption. As you go through the Old Testament, you'll learn here and there about the near kinsman redeemer, that related person that could come and free you from your debt that's what Jesus did. God became a man so that as the perfect man, He could pay the debt for sin that every man owes. Next, it is God's will that we be saved. That is God's desire. And His payment for sin is sufficient to cover all sin. Scripture says that God is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. Why? Because He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance through Christ Jesus. But again, God won't force Himself upon us. The Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, then I will come into him, and our fellowship will be restored." Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, God puts up with a lot. Why? Because He's long-suffering. He wants us to be saved. But eventually, His patience will come to an end. Whether in death, when your final answer is final, or to a point where God quits calling. You know, there was a point where the Jews disobeyed God for about three years in the wilderness. And finally God said, okay, you're done. You're not going into the promised land. Your children will go into the promised land, but you're all going to die out here. They begged and pleaded for a second chance, but it was too late. The invitation was pulled from the table. That scripture I said a moment ago from Revelation chapter 3, where it talks about Jesus standing at the door of your heart and knocking. You know what it's like to go visit, or you used to, before the days of COVID, when you'd actually go be friends with people. You go knock on somebody's door. After a while, if they don't answer, what do you do? You quit knocking, and you go away. Bible says that no man can come unless the Father is calling. It's not that we can't, but I promise you, Unless the Holy Spirit is calling you and convincing you and drawing you, our sinful nature won't have any attraction to come to God. 
So while he's still dealing with you, before it's too late, you better say yes, because eventually his patience will come to an end, and you'll either stand before God as your Savior, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having greatly received, gratefully received God's gift of eternal life, and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter now into the joy of thy Lord, or you will stand before God, your judge, clothed in your wretchedness, clothed in your sin, and you will hear these words, depart from me, you cursed, I never knew you. Ladies and gentlemen, last thought right here, don't forget it. It's not God's love that sends you to hell. It's your rejecting God's love that sends you to hell. And this is not very kind. It's amazing how much of the Bible isn't. It's very blunt. But we seem to ignore all of those warnings. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it doesn't just mean reverence. It actually means fear of the Lord. Hebrews 10, Paul says this, and understand the context. He's writing to a bunch of Jews that have become believers and followers of Jesus of Nazareth, but they are being pressured to fall back into Judaism, to go back into the routine of the temple worship, to participate in the annual Day of Atonement. They are being pressured to draw back into society from which they have been ostracized. And Paul says this, if you now willfully, after you've received the knowledge of the truth, rejecteth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, you know that day of atonement was just a picture done in faith, looking forward to the Lamb of God whose sacrifice would take away sins. If you now ignore that Lamb of God and return to the old religious system, then you have for certain an expectation of fiery judgment and indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. And notice, if you reject Christ, you are considered an adversary of God. He that ignored Moses' law and committed a capital crime died physically based upon the witness in court of two or three witnesses. How much greater do you suppose the punishment will be worthy on someone who hath taken the Son of God. Here, God gives us His Son, Jesus. You take Jesus, eh, I'll throw it on the ground. Don't want that. Stomp on Him, put Him out like a cigarette butt. Who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, who hath counted the blood of Christ, wherewith He was sanctified as irrelevant, unimportant, unholy, and hath insulted the Holy Spirit by saying no. Where do you think you're going to stand before God when you understand that when you reject Christ, that's what you're guilty of? Jesus underfoot saying the blood is useless to me and the Holy Spirit is irrelevant. I'm rejecting the call. Well, we know Him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Ladies and gentlemen, we see the proponents of homosexuality fly the banner, Love wins. 
I'll tell you what, 2,000 years ago, it did. About three weeks, we're going to be celebrating Resurrection Sunday with some very special services, as always, but hopefully extra special leading up to that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what matters right here. Christianity is not an emotion. It is not a feeling. It is a fact. That tomb was occupied for 72 hours. If you notice, last time Cindy and I were there, which is about three years ago now, it was still empty. Yeah, amen. Amen. Love won 2,000 years ago. Jesus said that I'm going to come out of the tomb in three days and three nights. And by that, you will know that I am the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. He was offered to pay the debt for sin that we owe. It's up to us as to what we do with this offering, with this gift that's been offered to us. We can either, like Thomas, fall on our knees and cry out to him, My Lord and my God. Or we can, like Herod Agrippa, say, Nope, almost, Paul. You almost persuaded me to become a Christian, but too much of a price to pay. Your eternity, your relationship with God depends upon your answer to that question. 